This briefing is uh, quite timely. Um, I spent the last half of April in China uh, meeting with a good many of officials and uh, scholars in that country. And my trip there reinforced uh, a belief I've had for a long time that China is probably the single most important relationship the United States has looking forward for the first half of the 21st century. If the United States follows up policy in uh, places like Kosovo or Venezuela, that certainly can cause problems, but they're manageable problems. If we get the China relationship wrong, we are going to pay a fearsome price for decades to come. Now, given the uh, title of my book, not surprisingly, I believe that the Taiwan issue is the one issue that could lead to a Sino-U.S. armed conflict. There are certainly other issues that can cause a lot of tensions in the relationship, but this is the one that stands out that could really get ugly. And despite the recent developments uh, politically in Taiwan, I think the long-term prognosis for resolving the Taiwan issue peacefully is not particularly good. There's no question that in the short term, we are going to see a significant easing of cross-strait cross tensions. Uh, we have now entered a period of dominance by the Kuomintang Party, the KMT. Both the legislative elections in January and the presidential election in March represented a repudiation of the DPP. Uh, and not just the cross-strait policy. I don't want to imply that that was the sole issue. Uh, Chen Shui-bian's administration, uh, particularly during the past four years, has demonstrated a degree of corruption and ineptitude that has made Chen, as he left office, even less popular in Taiwan than George W. Bush is in the United States. That takes some doing. With the election of Ma Yingzhu to the presidency, there is now uh, a leader in Taiwan committed to preserving the status quo instead of pushing the envelope on Taiwanese sovereignty the way Chen Shui-bian did, and for that matter, Li Deng-wei before him. Now, given Beijing's agitation about Chen's policies and Li's, uh, leaders in uh, China are probably relieved at the result of the uh, recent elections. And uh, truth be told, Washington is probably relieved as well. We're going to see a number of measures taken to further reduce tensions. Direct air and sea links between the mainland and Taiwan are uh, just months and perhaps weeks away. Talks are also going to begin on the basis of the so-called 1992 consensus. This was the, uh, uh, the agreement in which both sides agreed there was one China, but that they had different interpretations of what one China meant. A wonderful uh, evasion. Yet Beijing can't be all that thrilled about Ma's policies. After all, he stated his approach very succinctly. No unification, no independence, no use of force. If I were a Chinese leader in Beijing, I'd be very happy about point number two, but I wouldn't be all that thrilled about point number three, particularly when it's connected to point number one, no unification. And the reality is that Ma is not going to be much more receptive to reunification, even in the long term, 
than the independent stalwarts of the Democratic Progressive Party. Consider his statement in a February 2006 speech at the London School of Economics, his most detailed speech on cross-strait policy to date. Ma conceded in that speech that reunification might become possible, but only when, and I quote, developments in mainland China reach a stage when its political democracy, economic prosperity, and social well-being become congruent with those of Taiwan. Talk about setting the bar rather high. That's something that's not going to happen in the lifetimes of any of the people in this room, even if China were to maintain a, an economic growth rate of the area of 9 or 10 percent a year, something that will become much more difficult as the overall Chinese economy becomes larger. Notice Ma did not say, look, we'll talk about reunification if the mainland becomes democratic. That's only one of the standards he required. So I think uh, Chinese leaders might very well conclude that Ma is uh, simply stalling, that he isn't going to be in their face in the way that uh, Chen and the DPP officials were, but there is no realistic prospect of progress on reunification. And one has to ask in that context just how long China will be willing to tolerate an upstart de facto independent island 100 miles off its shores as China becomes stronger economically and militarily, especially an island that most mainland Chinese regard as rightfully Chinese territory. Ma's victory has probably postponed the day of reckoning, and I think it may have postponed it for as much as a decade, but we have to be realistic about it. It is just a postponement. And given the implied U.S. defense commitment to Taiwan in the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, America would still be caught in the middle of any cross-strait confrontation whenever that occurs. Now, the Taiwan issue stands out over the long term as the big problem in U.S.-China relations. But there are other problems brewing that could cause serious tensions, granted tensions short of war, but still very troubling tensions between Beijing and Washington. A couple of uh, issues come to mind readily. Uh, sharp differences in policy about how to deal with the Iranian nuclear issue. And uh, lingering differences, and perhaps now intensifying differences again, about how to deal with the North Korean nuclear problem. In both cases, it is almost certain that there will be growing U.S. pressure on Beijing to embrace more rigorous economic sanctions. And Beijing, it was certainly clear from my meetings, will resist that pressure strongly. And one can assume Washington will be very unhappy about that lack of cooperation. There is also a more subtle but I think very important change in the political dynamic here in the United States. Protectionist forces regarding trade with China are growing stronger in both the Democratic and the Republican parties. In addition, human rights activists in this country are becoming much more insistent, and that is also true in both the Democratic and Republican parties. The Tibet issue is clearly a catalyst for this, a greater concern about China's human rights policies, but it's not the only issue, and even if the Tibet 
uh, uh, conflict were to subside, I think there will be more and more pressure on the incoming administration to take a harder stance on China's human rights policies and to regard that as a much higher priority in U.S. policy than it has been uh, in recent years. Finally, there is a growing perception in the United States of China as a strategic rival, if not an outright strategic threat. Now, any one of those factors alone would not be enough to derail the U.S.-China relationship or even cause big problems in it. But coming together the way they seem to be doing within the political context in the United States, they constitute a rather potent mixture. Chinese officials and scholars with whom I spoke uh, are, I think, terribly complacent about this. They assume that the anti-China sentiment that they're hearing is largely uh, just political rhetoric in a presidential election year. They told me time and time again, look, we've heard this all before. We heard Bill Clinton talk about the need to stand up to Beijing during the 1992 presidential campaign, and within a year in office he was doing business just as his predecessors since Richard Nixon. We expect the same thing to happen whether Senator Obama or Senator McCain becomes president in January. Uh, I noticed I did not refer to the possibility of Hillary Clinton becoming president. Um, I find such complacency a bit troubling because I think it does not capture the change in mood here in the United States. This time around, there is a greater likelihood of a real policy shift with the incoming administration. And that is especially true if Senator McCain wins the presidency. That means a rockier period in U.S.-China relations ahead. Now, I don't want to overstate that. I'm not talking about a Cold War-style hostility between Beijing and Washington. That's not very likely, barring uh, some... Uh, development that, that we haven't anticipated. But the emergence of more tensions and probably more animosity, more name-calling going back and forth across the Pacific. That is unfortunate because the Chinese relationship is very important to the United States. And frankly, I think those who see China as an inevitable economic and strategic threat are mistaken. If one listens to uh, both trade protectionists and strategic hawks in the United States, you would swear that the, the Chinese are, government is the reincarnation of Nazi Germany and the Chinese are all 15 feet tall and about to take over the planet. As my colleague Justin Logan will uh, suggest, that uh, view is really not warranted. Thank you very much. As Ted suggested, I'd like to put sort of China into a larger uh, strategic context in Asia. Um, I cooked up the sort of crazy title for this event, so I'll feel free in criticizing it since it's my own writing. Um, but I'd like to sort of start off by defining the terms. I think when, when I came up with this idea, is conflict unavoidable? Well, by conflict, what I meant was this sort of systematic great power style confrontation 
that many people uh, are predicting. And in many ways, this is sort of the classic uh, realist story about uh, a hegemonic power confronting a rapidly rising power. It's very easy to go anywhere here uh, in town and hear the story about China's precipitous rise, how it's unprecedented in its, in its rapid growth, uh, and how there is throughout, hi you know, history is sort of littered with these stories of countries that are at the top of the heap being very, very uncomfortable uh, with rapidly rising powers and conflict erupts regularly. I do think that some, quote, conflict will be unavoidable. There will be sort of friction points as China's rise continues, which I believe it will. The question is how grave will be that conflict and how much of that conflict will be between China and the United States. Just by way of sort of background, as I've hinted uh, previously, this story about rising powers, uh, hegemons being unwilling to, to welcome them uh, into the great power pantheon is sort of a classic story in both the theoretical and historical literature. And I think in many ways China's rise is terribly remarkable. You can hear people uh, overseas in Swiss banks and elsewhere uh, talk about if everything goes wrong in China, China's economy will rival that of the United States by 2025 or 2030. That's a remarkable accomplishment even for a nation of 1.3 billion people. And conventionally, in both theory and history, one would think that a power that is rising that, that quickly would be a revisionist power, that is to say, would be looking to overturn the prevailing international order and aggrandize itself in the process. Now, conventionally, to assess threats, we look at two things, obviously, capabilities and intentions. And I think there's been a real mistake made in recent history, not too terribly recent, but over the past couple of decades, to focus on intentions. Well, intentions are hard to divine before the fact. It's very, very difficult to, to determine what China wants, but we can attempt to do so. But I think the more important question is what capabilities does China have? What power does China possess? In very sort of basic terms, China's defense spending, as has its economic growth overall, has gone up dramatically. Uh, defense spending estimates are very, very difficult to ascertain because, of course, Chinese defense spending is not transparent. There are a number of items that are left out of the official Chinese defense budget, and these difficulties have been compounded by fluctuations in currency uh, that cause uh, uh, an inaccurate reading when using market exchange rates. Um, but most estimates, and I'll, and I'll use a very, very rough uh, uh, range, put Chinese total defense spending between 100 and $150 billion a year. And I don't want to, to, to put myself out as a partisan of either of those polls, and I would accept for the sake of argument either of them. But at the same time, you've had people in, in Washington who have been uh, engaging in, I think, some funny business with uh, Chinese defense spending and with uh, defense economics, telling people that Chinese defense spending is roughly equivalent to that of the United States, that China spends $450 billion a year on defense. I think these claims are risible, and if, uh, heaven forfend, there are any defense economists in the room that want to do purchasing power parity uh, uh, discussions in the Q&A, uh, we can bore everyone else with that. But in general, we have this figure, let's say 100 to $150 billion uh, that we can use as a measurement. 
And that fits into a context where you have Japan, for example, spending roughly $45 billion a year, India spending roughly $29 billion a year, and Russia at about $33 billion a year. Uh, the U.S., of course, spends something in the neighborhood, depending on how, how you'd like to slice, uh, slice the pie, on the order of $600 billion per year. Uh, so that, that is of limited use, but I think it's important to sketch that out as a starting point for assessing uh, these capabilities that I've argued are very important. There are serious material capabilities that are still lacking and appear likely to, to be still lacking for at least a decade to come. China does not possess any aircraft carriers, for example. Its blue water navy is slowly coming together, emphasis on slowly. They're tinkering with this Ukrainian Varyag uh, aircraft carrier that they've got over there, but it doesn't appear terribly likely that they're going to have an operational aircraft carrier anytime soon. Another recent development that I can talk about a little bit more later is that China over the past 10 or 15 years has gotten significant arms sales of relatively high technology from Russia. This has declined precipitously in recent months, uh, and I would surmise that that is in part due to a certain uh, discomfort in Moscow about China's intentions. Uh, and about Russia burgeoning its capabilities even uh, uh, in pursuit of supporting its indigenous defense industry. But I think that we also need to take into account juxtaposed against China's growing defense budget, its growing economy, etc. The problems that China has, has to deal with that will put these capabilities into context, depending on whose calculations you use, there are roughly between 70 or 80,000 domestic political protests each year in China. Most of these are about sort of parochial economic issues. They're about corruption. Uh, they're about very, very sort of uh, basic human needs uh, concepts. But this is a very serious problem for, for the People's Republic to deal with uh, in the context of governing, let alone attempting to project power overseas. Uh, it has obviously difficulties uh, in the neighborhood. With it, it's, it's had difficulties with, with obviously Tibet and other regional uh, uh, relationships, uh, shall we say, that China has. Obviously, they've had natural disasters that have brought to light uh, problems with uh, Chinese infrastructure, problems with Chinese communication uh, to its citizens. There is obviously widespread pollution, which is a growing concern for many people inside of China. There's widening economic disparity between the coastal areas of China and interior China that is causing tensions among the Chinese populace. Uh, there are information and infrastructure deficiencies in China. And all of these, I think, mitigate to varying degrees against China's cohesion as this sort of monolithic strategic competitor uh, that Ted has pointed out some people view China as. It also, to add to this, has territorial disputes with many of the neighbors that have caused uh, increasing degrees of discomfort, not just Taiwan, but also obviously the Spratly Islands, uh, as well as one that I will touch on uh, a bit later uh, with India. But I think I've diminished the importance of trying to assess intentions thus far because I think they're impossible to know dispositively. But I think it is worth looking at history uh, and looking at uh, contemporary Chinese foreign policy to do our best to, to at least uh, get a sense of Chinese intentions. 
And it's worth asking the question, does China show signs of being a revisionist power, like I said, trying to overturn the international order uh, uh, dramatically? And I think that China, by most rights, feels fairly comfortable within the international order as it prevails today. Its sort of central tenet, as it has emerged over the past several years of its relationships with foreign countries, is non-intervention in the internal affairs of, of, of foreign countries. There's an obvious exception in the sense that Chinese don't believe that Taiwan is a foreign country and therefore feel much more comfortable uh, poking about in the domestic affairs of Taiwan. But in general, this is not a principle of a radical revisionist power. Um, And I think China clearly does envision a different balance of power within Asia. That is not to say that they seek to overturn the prevailing international order or to poison their relations necessarily with the United States. But I think given this desire that China would like to take a stronger role in East Asia, a salient question to ask ourselves is how would we envision the neighbors responding to this Chinese increased role? And importantly, who would bear the costs of constraining China's rise? And what is the United States to do? I think that in this case, we need to look at offloading as much of the responsibility constraining China to the neighbors. And this is one of, I think, the rare occasions where the Bush administration's foreign policy is to be praised in deepening relations with Japan, in signing the February 2005 uh, uh, agreement that Diminishing tensions in the Taiwan Strait is a joint security concern, not just for the United States, but for Japan as well. This rankled China, but I think this is at least an indication that some forces in the U.S. foreign policy community recognize that this is not a task that we should want to take on for ourselves. There's some discussion, and I was shocked to read earlier this week, um, a very prominent international relations scholar from uh, Princeton University described the Japanese as, quote, neither psychologically ready nor suitable for historical reasons, end quote, for a greater leadership role in East Asia. And it, it, it chafes when I hear these sort of uh, 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 inexplicable uh, determinist uh, uh, ideas applied to a particular people. And I think we need to be very, very careful about looking at history, uh, in, in many cases very, very old history, as a guide for our policies today. I also talked a little bit about the tension that has been bubbling up sporadically between China and India. I think one of the things that offloading some of this responsibility to the neighbors would do would highlight things such as a comment that was made by the Chinese ambassador to India a week before uh, Chinese President Hu Jintao's visit to India in November of 2006. And I'll quote from an Indian newspaper. This was a story that didn't receive terribly much coverage in the United States, but I think is, is, is quite important. Just a week ahead of Chinese President Hu Jintao's state visit to India, Beijing's envoy in New Delhi, Sun Yuxi, claimed that Arunachal Pradesh is a Chinese territory. Quote, in our position, the whole of what you call the state of Arunachal Pradesh is Chinese territory. And Tawang, a city within Arunachal Pradesh, is only one of the places in it. We are claiming all of that. That is our position. Uh, Now, Ambassador Yuxi was recalled a year later, but the Chinese government does things like still uh, deny visas to officials from the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh because of the Chinese government's claim that 
they are already citizens of China. This is a fairly dramatic turn of events that I think should make India terribly uncomfortable. But as long as the Indians believe that the Chinese-U.S. balance is the determining force in East Asian politics in the decades to come, they will not view these types of events with significant enough alarm. I think we also need to look at the relationship between Russia and China. And this has uh, waxed and waned over the past several years. But it appears clear that U.S. policy toward both Russia and China is a factor influencing Russian and Chinese decision-making about how close their relations should be. When the United States on the heels of the Rose and Tulip revolutions was seen as fomenting instability, for example, in Central Asia, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a joint uh, uh, sort of international institution, took on more momentum. It took on Iran, Pakistan, and India as observers, and this caused a lot of concern in Washington, although I think in some ways not enough concern. And then it has certainly uh, uh, waned uh, when historical difficulties between uh, Russia and China have come to the fore and when U.S. foreign policy has looked less destabilizing. But then again, we've seen recently the, the joint cooperation agreement between Russia and China in response to the U.S. missile defense shield. And I think that this relationship will, uh, uh, like I say, wax or wane contingent to some degree on U.S. foreign policy. I think we also need to acknowledge that many of the levers that the Chinese have over the United States that many people are concerned, I think rightly about, would, if used, hurt the Chinese as well. It's not a good thing that the Chinese hold as much American debt as they do. And it could be used in extremists as a lever against the United States. But at the same time, that would hurt the Chinese. Uh, so I think that it's important not to look at all of these things as strictly zero-sum. And I guess my last sort of benchmark for uh, what to do in the context of the U.S.-China relationship, and this is, I hope, an enduring uh, uh, and sort of catch-all rule that hopefully we're, we're beginning to internalize, is ignore the neocons. Uh, they have a fairly forthright platform, I think, of uh, poisoning relations uh, between the United States and China that I think was best formalized in, in an article in 2007 uh, by a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute that called for essentially a three-plank U.S.-China policy. The first plank was abandoning the one-China policy outright. The second plank was formalizing a defense commitment to Taiwan. And the third was, quote, energetically promoting democracy in China. This, I would submit, is a recipe for disaster in U.S.-China relations and should only be uh, uh, enacted in extremists or in some sort of alternate universe uh, where the uh, guiding principles of international affairs have been suspended. So I think there is every reason to believe that there is concern, there is the potential for trouble in the U.S.-China relationship in the years to come, but there is no reason why, with apt statesmanship, uh, that these shoals cannot be navigated and that uh, the worst fears of U.S.-China confrontation cannot be avoided. Thank you very much.